Welcome to the Freedom Fridays Project podcast. I'm Pete Clark, your host, The Whispers Guy. It appears that work expands to the time that we give it, and I started to explore how I was investing my time and effort, particularly on Fridays. It's evolved to an explanation and experiment with time, energy, attention and identity, and a mindset shift from I have to to I choose to. So if you're interested in exploring some changes to the way that you invest your time and your energy, if you'd like some tips on the way as you make some changes perhaps to your identity, if you would like the freedom of I choose to, away from I have to, then this is the podcast for you. So welcome to the Freedom Fridays Project podcast. So welcome to this week's episode of the Freedom Fridays Project podcast. Uh, this week, I've got a, a special guest who was one of the first people to give me some really helpful feedback when I first started this. And it's been 30 odd episodes in and I finally persuaded him to come on. And we're going to change it a little bit. And I've known this chap for oh, 20 odd years and not really realizing we live two streets away from each other for a long time. And so please welcome Marcus to the podcast. God. <laughs> How are you, sir? I'm just going to, I'm very well, Pete. I'm just going to turn that that thing off. Uh, it's coming through the other side. Let That's all right, mate. Welcome. And so, Marcus, um, I normally start this by asking the question around the change, you know, ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And in chatting with you before, um, I was really keen because we play in the same space. We, we talk to clients and people about, organizational transformational change individual personal etc etc i'd be really keen if you're open to it to talk about that in terms of what's been your experience of what works what doesn't work how do people navigate it when do they fail when do they succeed around this whole huge great melting pot of ideas around change would you be willing to talk about that mate i'd love to i can't guarantee anything profound but (laughs) but we can certainly create some um Create some, uh, what's the word, some bandwidth for people. Um, I don't know if we're going to add to the 2 million podcasts that are out there, but let's have a go, Pete. We'll see what well, we can do. at least my mum my might get some insight. Well, and, and mine too. She'll just, I'll send her the link and she'll go, oh, this is fantastic. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, you know, it'll be just like visiting her, but not visiting her. So maybe the first question to start with then, we, we, can, we can start at an individual level or an organisation level. I'd be interested in your view. Is change really that hard? Um, I, I struggle with the change management um, ceremony that that um, is is around it all. There's a lot of column inches given over to you know managing change and handling change and 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 it all feels very sort of deliberate and overblown to, to my way of thinking the, the 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 author that made sense to me when i read it was the way ralph stacy thinks about and and the late ralph stacy sadly passed away only some weeks ago uh but ralph is runs the doctorate of management or ran the doctorate of management in the university of hertfordshire um and had this idea of complex responsive processes which was a was a turn to the complexity sciences to understand organizational life and within all of that literature and thinking, he had this idea of paradox. And he said, one of the things that managers struggle with is that 
there are a number of paradoxes at work when we, when I say at work, in effect, um, when we're going about our life in organisations. And when it comes to change, what's really happening is a paradox of continuity and change. Um, you're not doing change and then doing not change, yet you're always doing both. Um, and, you know, and a very simple way to think about that is that, you know, if you take some of our most beloved brands and we can think about something like, say, Coca-Cola, right? It's a good example, right? So 1812, was it 1812? 18, no, uh, oh, no, 1896, I got my year wrong, when John Pemberton first put the black sticky stuff in a, in a bottle. And then um, uh, Candler, Chan Candler was the guy that kind of turned it into a business and, you know, made it into a thing and the soda fountains and the whole bit. And it goes back to quackery medicine, right? So you think about what that product was from its early inception all the way through to today as they're dealing with, you know, type 2 diabetes and, and, and plastic in the environment and the various contexts. And so you might say, how does that product have to change so that it can continue? And you see the, the presence of both of those ideas. We're trying to keep the Coca-Cola product going or, you know, and, and PepsiCo would be similar. We're trying to keep that product going what do we have to do to it so that it can continue to be what it's always been? And that would probably be my, my opening thought is that if we can take a more nuanced view of it, then we think about it differently in terms of this idea of not having to manage it, then having to manage it, then not having to manage this thing called change. Uh, I'm, I'm going to dive straight into the, the concept of these paradoxes because like you, uh, I know, you know, 0.1% of what's out there. And, and when I talk about paradoxes and, you know, all that, you know, toggling between this and that, everyone nods and goes, yeah, yeah, I, I get it. I get it, Pete. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I don't fully get it. I don't really get it at all, really. But when I spruik it, it's like, yeah, we understand that. And yet what I observe is, no, we don't. We, we really do not manage that both and thinking. We tend to we say we do, but we're kind of straight into either or thinking because it's comfortable. It's it's more certain than the uncertainty of not knowing. Do you see that as well in le the leaders that you work with? Yeah, and, and I often, whenever they do that, uh, you know, this idea of, because I'm trying to remove the idea that you're going over there to do a thing called manage change. Yeah. To just point out gently that as we sit here today, all of us are getting a day older. All of us are getting a few hairs greyer. Um, and by the way, you're not managing anything. It's just bloody well happening. It's happening, it's happening anyway. It's just yeah. happening. Um, and in, in some respects, that's sort of liberating to go, don't worry, it's going to change on you, whether you want it to or not. It's just going to gently drift. And then, of course, what we know from the nonlinear idea in complexity is that um, things are sudden until they have a phase shift or a phase transition. And then there's a uh, like a, a phase shift event or, if you like, a collapse so you might say, you know, that an avalanche, you know, we see the bit where it's collapsing, but what we haven't noticed is all the little imperceptible movements that were heading towards that moment where mm -hmm. that happened. Um, mm -hmm. You know, your car breaks down in a similar way. It's gradually getting close to a point where it's going to break, and then one day it breaks. Um, and so I think, you know, those things are happening in organisations and in teams. You know, that, that highly motivated member of your team is highly motivated today kind of highly motivated tomorrow, reasonably motivated the next day. It all sort of plays out as they're fine. And then one day they come in and put an envelope on your desk and say, I'm done. And you're like, well, how come five days ago you didn't say that we are 20% of the way towards your resignation? Um, <laughs> you know, and on Tuesday, we are 40% of the way towards. And that's because it's not linear. And, and But yeah. there's gentle change happening. And yet some of us, 
it might even been imperceptible to her in my example there. Even she couldn't have told she was getting towards that point. But then suddenly, you know, she stomped around the lounge room at home on Thursday night and her partner said to her, you know what, honey, just resign. Too bad. Just tell them you're done. And yeah. boom, there's a phase shift event. There's an avalanche event yeah. in social life where suddenly something changes. You go, well, when did that happen? Did it happen on Thursday or did it happen five days earlier or five months earlier? Yeah. When do you start the clock? I've, I've observed that success or failure, however it's defined, um, often appears to happen slowly and imperceptibly until it's fast and obvious. Yeah. Which is exactly what I think you're describing. Yeah. And do you, with, with the individuals that you see, do you think they play a slowing down or, a, or an accelerating effect on the change that might happen in a team or an organisation? Um, well, I think every time you act in an organisation, I think um, while, while the narrative says, you know, that leaders are these all-knowing, all-capable, powerful <laughs> people who can somehow, you know, develop a penetrating diagnosis of the current reality and a magnificent prescription for an idealised future and then elegantly go about flawlessly executing that, that's the fantasy. That's what we, you know, that's what's on the LinkedIn thread most days. Um, I think instead what happens is they intervene in the change and with good intent, invariably, right? They're trying to do something good, which is either to mitigate a bad one or accelerate a good one. Um, and then sometimes they get some of what they wanted and it goes well for them. And sometimes they get some of what they didn't want. They're like, oh, hang on, I've actually sent it in the other direction unintentionally. And then the other thing they get, which they often don't anticipate, is they get things they weren't expecting. Uh, now, they can be good or bad. Sometimes you can go, well, actually, a side benefit of doing this, it turns out that that's had a positive or negative effect on this other constituent or part of the of the puzzle that I hadn't even thought of as a as a point in time you know you see this at the moment I've just come off the phone with um with our lawyer to just helping us with some contracts and and he was sort of talking about you know we'd wrestled as a firm they're a mid-sized law firm with working from home and how will we do that COVID of course thrust it upon them and then he said, you know, as a, as a funny unintended consequence of it all, we've actually become a more liberated, connected firm. We're a bunch of introverted lawyers. He said, I've just come off a, a lunchtime um, virtual Zoom yoga session. He said, we would never have done that on site at the office in the city, but we've all just done it sitting on our various lounge rooms and bedroom floors at home. And it's wonderful. And he said, no one planned this, but we'll grab it because it seems to be there. So that's, an, a, that's a positive unintended consequence of something that you know, they did in another part of the business. Yeah. And, and your experience of leaders, what, what do you think prevents them from being able to hold that space and not rush to make sense too quick and not rush to assume this is good and that's bad? Do you observe any traits that help them or hinder them in holding that space? Just say a bit more about what you mean by holding the space. What? Well, often what I've experienced is smart people, one of their Achilles heels is they try and make sense of things too quickly. Right. Something happens. Ah, what this means is this. What this doesn't mean is that. And they'll head off that journey of making it work or avoiding it. And what I'm hearing, what I've observed is the ability to hold space allows you to see how it plays out for a day or a week or a month yeah. or a little bit to know, oh, maybe, maybe something's going to change a little bit. Let's see where the avalanche falls first. Yes. Have, well, have they, you observed any traits in leaders that are either really good at that or really bad at that? I think, I mean, that's that, you know, um, tolerance, what they call intolerance for uncertainty 
is a is a measure Richard Carlton's work which says how tolerant are you of prospective uncertainty and inhibitory uncertainty so prospective uncertainty is I don't know what's going to come and inhibitory uncertainty is because I don't know what's happening I can't act um, now what we find when you look in their data and this is particularly true of entrepreneurs they they're they're quite prone to um, prospective uncertainty. They don't like knowing what's coming, but they're quite comfortable with inhibitory uncertainty, meaning they don't go to ground and freeze. So they can operate in the presence of not knowing, which means they have a, a tolerance for going, look, this won't stop me from trying some things, even though I have no idea how it's really going to play out. And I think for some leaders who, and, and to be fair, it, it's a little bit biological, your, your set point on that, you can acquire uh, you can build up a bit of a tolerance if you sort of work on it and think about it. Um, it's to sit with the knot in your stomach, acknowledge the knot in your stomach going, I have a knot in my stomach. I'm not sure what's going to play out here, but I'm going to definitely give myself 24, 48 hours before we publish a point of view on it. And we'll just see how a few things play out around us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're witnessing that at the moment with the return to office mandated vaccine thing. I think it's a real big game of um, B2B chicken in that every, all the enterprises are looking at all the other enterprises going, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. Well, did you do yeah. it? Well, yeah. if you do it, we'll do it. And, you know, when the first law firm goes, the other law firms follow. Or you might have seen Deloitte went with the, they, yeah. they took a view on vaccines. Yep. Um, and then with that, one of the other big four said, okay, well, you're in, we'll go in. You know, yeah. it, it, because they're just, they're probably in those meeting rooms going, I don't know, let's just let it sit for a couple of days and see if anyone else goes on record with how they're going to deal with vaccines and, and office. And that might give us enough of a, you know, a, a, what's the word? At least a, a groundswell of public sentiment with which to move. Yeah. Which for me ties into, you know, coming back to your Coke question, how does the product change? I wonder if sometimes is it a combination of the product changing or not and the perception of it changing or not? So this groundswell of public opinion. We believe now this is the way to go because there's enough of us saying this is the way to go. Yeah. Well, and that's what keeps us alive, right? I mean, on balance, if you run with the run with the pack, there's the pack probably knows something. You know, I know we talk about you know herd mentality and they run off the edge of the cliff. Well, that's true too. But but you know, as a general rule, you might say the goal is survival. You know, pass on our genes. You go right. So so we want to still be in the game. We just want to stay in the game. And so maybe you know a large strategy is just to look around and go, what does everyone else seem to be doing? And as long as we do the average of all of that, we might be kind of okay. Um, let's just have a look and listen to see what some of the early deciders go with and what we choose mm. to do. And how much do you think people look and listen for what they want to hear versus actually maybe I should look and listen for what I, you know, metaphorically can't hear because that will open up possibility for me? I don't know. I, I, like, like honest answer, like how much does that? I don't know. I've certainly met some leaders who are very conscious of inviting novel contribution. So, so they're very conscious of going, I want to hear from people who I know disagree generally and specifically with me on this topic. Mm-hmm. So let's bring that, you know, and we hear, I mean, that's all in the inclusion literature and the, you know, the diversity yeah. in DNI literature going, yeah. you know, but to actively bring in points of view that you go, I know you and I don't see eye to eye on this. So please talk to me. What, what do I need? Well, it was one of the points you made in, I think, one of your Monday morning emails. What do I now, what am I about to now learn? I think it was one of those. I read it somewhere. Mm. Um, you know, talk to me about what it is. I'm. I definitely don't see just yet. Mm. I think some some leaders are 
exceptionally good at that. And any, any signals as to why they're good at it beyond being born? What is it their experience? Is it their interpretation? Is that their meaning making? Is it their the five people they surround themselves? Have you got any anecdotes about what causes someone to be like that or not? I don't know that, well, I certainly don't have a, a clear-cut, elegant answer. I think generally they've had either direct experience or vicarious experience mm. that's taught them the merit of entertaining divergent points of view when making a, a complex and, and high-stakes decision so that they've learned that it is a good idea to invite the, the different points of view into the conversation and to spend time with those being battered around the room before we come to any conclusions and even to saying look today we're just going to talk about different ways to handle this we're not deciding anything tomorrow we'll make a decision i want us all to go home overnight and have another think as well we'll, we'll meet again in the morning for a quick half hour to see if anyone's got any new thoughts on the topic but for now let's just hear each other out and then we'll make a decision at 10 a.m tomorrow mm. you know that that kind of um what's the right word? It's sort of like that certain uncertainty, if you like, or, you know, predictable yeah. unpredictability, you know, where you're, again, another paradox, where you're acknowledging that we're going to definitely make a decision, not yet. Yep. <laughs> that makes sense. I, th I, I can't remember if it's, we spoke about this um, this year or last year, or I read about one of your posts, which I always find fascinating. And you said something like, um, you know, whatever the decision or whatever the complex scenario is, you know, loosely split your team into three or four groups. This group go and, you know, discuss the advantages of this extreme. This group go and discuss the advantage of the other extreme and then come together again. And that's what we'll discuss as opposed to here's what, it, what, what should we do? And we kind of follow the initial voice of, well, it seems to be yeah. we should be doing this or that. Actually deliberately creating the space to have divergent views and not agreeing one way or the other until we've kind of, come together and let's see what that creates. I love that move. I mean, I think that's a very popular, you know, it's called a few different things. Some people call it war gaming. Some people call it red team, blue team. Um, you know, a lot of investment um, institutional money managers use it where they say, right, we're going to have an argument about a certain stock. I want, you know, three of you are going to argue the bull case and go and tell us why we should be buying it hand over fist. Yep. And another three of you are going to go and research and put together a case for a bearish example, why we should run away and, you know, run as fast as we can and get away from it. Um, and we're going to hear the arguments as to why um, it's a good idea. You know, like, again, a current example at the moment would be investing in travel stocks. You know, do you believe that, okay, now's the time. Go in, go hard, go big, <laughs> because we're now all going to massively get back on planes and cruise ships and off we go. Yeah. Yeah. Or do you believe that that moment's already passed, that actually you should have done that in the darkest days of lockdown and already the future is priced in? You know, they're great debates to have, right, to go, all right, well, and, you know, and it's a lovely mechanism. And I think that's the simplest way for a team to build up its tolerance for and capability with divergent thinking is just mm -hmm. to force the groups, force the team into two teams and go, go away and argue the for and go away and argue the against. And then we'll come back and have the discussion and debate. Yeah. And particularly if you put somebody who you know is for, put them on the against team. Um, so if you go, I know my CFO really wants to do this, so I'm going to put them on the team that says we shouldn't do it and force them to go and build an yeah. argument as to why we shouldn't. I remember working with a team years ago now. Um, and it was a Kiwi team. And they were going through that question of should we change the New Zealand flag? 
maybe three, four, five years ago. And I did exactly that. Um, who's kind of kind of for it? Who thinks it might be a good idea? Who thinks it might not be a good idea? Right, swap. <laughs> You've got to argue right. the other side. Lovely. And and for me, it wasn't. So I'm diving into a little bit of our practice here. It wasn't necessarily the outcome of the conversation because I think they'd probably go with the herd anyway for good corporate branding reasons. But actually, the conversations they had, the perspectives that forcing them to take, even if albeit loosely, was far more valuable than the outcome of the conversation. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think just the sheer fitness for, for spirited debate. I think that's there's no downside for that, right? Any team goes, this won't be the last time we have something difficult to decide together. Let's just, you know, let's practice our ability to work through knotty challenges for which there's no clear-cut way to go. And, you know, there's arguments for and against. Let's explore them together. In your experience with the teams that you work with, have we built or have we lost a little bit of that fitness to have spirited debate? Um, I think we've lost a lot of fitness to have a spirited debate. I think, and it's not just the remote working thing, it's the, it's the cataclysmic event that was the pandemic. And so um, not only were we working from home, um, but we were also quite likely dealing with some very difficult headwinds in all kinds of arenas, whether it was, you know, homeschooling or our partners runs a travel agency, which has been destroyed or, you know, um, and the, all these sort of things. And so um, obviously there was a, a heavy emphasis toward pastoral care and checking in and how are we? And you've seen, you know, the, the, the proliferation of mental health um, commentary and awareness and mechanisms and support. I mean, it's magnificent and it's, it's wonderful. But if you were in a, you know, like a thought experiment, if you just come from another planet and you arrived onto Earth and you logged into LinkedIn and you read it, you might say to yourself, God, what the hell is wrong? What's happened to these people? Yeah. What, how come all they seem to be talking about is mental health? What's going on? Like that would be a, a question for, for an outsider who's brand new to the, to the yeah. narrative. Yeah. Um, now, bring that back to an organisation, you go, I think it's quite tricky and it has been tricky. We've certainly seen it with you know, the people leaders we're dealing with who go, I find it hard to have a performance conversation at the moment because I've just got to be so careful about everybody's wherewithal and, you know, how they're coping variously with the, yeah. and because it's so uneven in terms of in any given team, you might have someone who's thriving, who's loving it, someone who's desperately miserable, someone who's got a mountain of headwinds and yet someone else who goes, no, no, I, I bought Afterpay stock right at the beginning. And so this has been the greatest 18 months of my life. You know, <laughs> like, like that's the problem. Unlike, say, an economic downturn where for everybody it's all a bit bad, yeah. this thing has been the most asymmetric experience imaginable. Yeah. I mean, there are people, you know, if you work for a pathology lab, I mean, they, they had real challenges with their Rem and Ben committees on the board to go, we have triggered, you know, 400% bonuses. Do we pay them? Is that the right thing to do while... Yeah airlines and cruise companies are stood down like we've we've triggered the milestones to you know release the payments but how does that look you know so for some people it's been the greatest time of their life and for other people it's been the worst and for the people leader they're there going god well, what have i got in my mix for my team and how do i variously navigate the different you know contexts so therefore you tend to back away from the performance thing so to your question long long-winded answer um is i think teams of are gently finding the ability to go, okay, let's discuss our performance. Let's talk about some hard things. Let's yep. face into the fact that, you know, while we've been managing pandemic-y stuff, we've kind of missed a trick on the project. We've fallen behind the deadlines. 
and so on and so on. Um, mm. and they want to get back to that, I think. I've yeah. seen it in a couple of cases. I, again, opinion alert here. Um, what I observe and my take on that is that mental health stuff, softer stuff, hidden stuff was always there. It just got hidden. It just yeah. got hidden under a performance conversation. It just got hidden under a mask of, I'm a high achiever, we're a high achiever, we've got, to, we've got to produce this product, profit, whatever it might be. And this time has caused it to come far more to the surface. And people yeah. leaders in particular have been less adept at dealing with the people side, ironically, of their people leadership. Well, it's, I think in fairness, and in their defence, perhaps, not that you're attacking them, but I suppose, but in their defence, um, it, it, it was probably never part of the original remit. No, right? I agree. Or, at least, I agree. Or, not, or not expressly called out as such. I going, totally agree. Yeah, your job is to run this team of people. Here are your KPIs to hit. Yep. By the way, we need you to be sort of an accidental part-time counsellor, clinician, yep. you know, confidant and, you know, therapist. And now I know people will howl at me suggesting that they're the implications of this work and, you know, they're not. But to some extent they go, oh, look, I, I, I'm almost too scared to ask how they are. One guy said this the other day, he says, I'm scared to ask how they are because I'm not sure I can get the toothpaste back in the tube when they actually tell me. Um, and so I kind of just want to go, you know, closed-ended question, doing okay? Yep, okay, good. Let's have a look at the report. Let's open the dashboard and look at the metrics. Um, yes. you, know, you know, like, please don't take it down a path. That, you know, it's tricky. It's really tricky. I think you're right. I think you're, you know, whether they've been primed for the role or not, it's in the, the, the JD and it's in my role description. I'm not sure I've been properly equipped to handle it yeah. when it really comes to the surface. Yeah, I, I, you know, and obviously, you know, people are doing a wonderful job to sort of stand up the EAP and the, the various things around that to, to handle that. But, yeah. but um, it's, yeah, I think it's very fraught and challenging for, for some of our, for some people leaders, you know, I mean, some people have a, you know, an affinity or a proclivity or a, yeah. a disposition that maybe leans toward it more readily, but for others, it's, it's tough. And, and holding the mirror up to ourselves um, what, what's your view on, so I would put myself in this bucket, I've been immersed in this world for far too long, decades, and still on a daily basis, screw it up, don't get it right, don't follow my own advice, fall over, you know, don't make the changes that I know I can and should make, but just, uh, you know, for whatever reason. Do, do you observe that in you, or are you a bit better or worse than that? Um. Oliver Berkman has a book called The Antidote, which is an inverted commentary on, on the um, positive psychology movement. Yeah. Uh, and as you might say, what is otherwise colourfully described as the happiness mafia or the, self in, the self-improvement zealotry. Um, I, it, it, it's a very useful book to read because, you know, a lot of what you're describing is, you know, when I don't follow or I don't implement, you know, and all I would say to that is according to what alleged standard that you're supposedly meant to adhere to, um, you know, so if you remove the standard, you'd stop failing. Now that sounds a bit defeatist when you just yeah. leave it there, but, um, you know, I, I suppose I, I try to, you know, I, I mean, I love the big five literature on, on uh, individual differences all of those five factors are normally distributed in the population, meaning there are arguments for high and large amounts of these things. And 
small and low amounts of these things. You know, so none of them are all good and none of them are all bad. Um, you know, this idea of strengths, I think, is very problematic because, you know, in one context, yes, strength. In another context, weakness. So then they buy themselves an out by saying, oh, yes, but don't overdo it. It's like, well, that's always been the problem, that whatever it is, you know, don't over, under, you know, so on the one hand, we say, have discipline and follow your goals. And on the other hand, we say, be kind to yourself, self-compassion, self-care. Well, yeah. which one are you going to pick on the, you know, because you can find anything, right? You can say, I should go to the gym. Oh, don't shoot all over yourself. It's like, well, yeah, but maybe you should go to the gym. You know, like, you know, the, the, the shoes aren't going to run themselves. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I, when I'm trying to get you a direct answer here, but going, I, I try to not get too caught up on whether or not, you know, I'm doing enough of the right, the so-called right things. Yeah. I guess I, I don't know that it's a, I don't know that it's a winnable quest. And I, I wonder whether it is, is a recipe to be forever discontent because you're right. There'll always be something you haven't done according to yeah. some preordained standard that, you know, amazing people adhere to, yeah. you know, like super successful people wake up at 4am. Do they yeah. really? Yeah. Yeah. Are the 4am sure? club. Yeah. Well, yeah. so I, I, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm seeking bias in, in this, but I, interpret what you've saying is exactly the problem we've taken all of those things into a binary do this don't do that oh hang on change do that don't do this hmm. whereas we come back to our original kind of question at the start which was how do people hold the space to kind of know when to dial it up a little bit or pull it back a little bit or toggle more tasks or toggle more people or you know don't go to the gym today or do go to the gym today rather than being stuck in this i have to i have to do it now and all of it otherwise i'm burnt out oh i'm burnt out so it's this kind of like meandering between, I often use the infinity loop as a visual for it, hmm. which seems to help people kind of go, oh yeah, maybe today's the day where it's okay not to. But if I do that for a lifetime, oh, okay, when's it becoming a bit closer? I need to. Oh uh, yeah, not, but not every day. And you kind of, this infinity loop seems to help people navigate all of this uncertainty and vocalness and complexity in a way that perhaps going one way or the other hasn't. I think that's a lovely visual for it because, you know, you do oscillate between, you know, I think didn't, didn't back in the UK day when we first started working together, there was that funny idea of a, of a bank account or a bucket, or I can't quite remember what the metaphor was, but, you know, the idea that, you, you know, some things are deposits. So, you know, I ate a salad and I went for a run. Okay, deposit, that's a good thing. Um, but, you know, I'm going to have a glass of wine and, and, and a bag of, you know, crisps. Well, that's a bad thing. Yeah, but I had it with a friend. Well, that's a good thing. Um, you know, and, and I think, you know, if you take a, I don't know, a portfolio view of yourself, yeah. um, then you don't get too miserable by denying yourself all the pleasures. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, you don't be, become too gluttonous by, you know, um, did, you know, allowing yourself to not fulfill some obligations. Yeah. I mean, if you read, uh, you know, I find all the high-performance literature quite interesting because most people who did anything, they got a book written about it you know, they talk in unpleasant terms about their training regime and they did make themselves do things they didn't want to do. Mm. You know, they go, I didn't want to go to training. I didn't. Um, I missed out on parties. I missed out on lots of things. It was wholly unpleasant. And I loved competing at the national and international events, yep. you know, and it's holding that polarity in your head to go, both those things are true. I hate training and I'm glad I've trained. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they might wake up and say, I have to go to the gym. And you go, good for you. Yeah. I remember, I think when you, we started working together, it was kind of borrowing from the old Covey description of production and production capability. 
or capacity. Mm. And the, the coaches would have a Friday off <laughs> to learn and distinguish and create. And the sales guys would go, you're not having a day off. You're coming to meetings with me. And it was, you know, that got squashed. And you know, it, was, it was funny how it all played out. Yeah, well, that, I must confess that we still find that, you know, we do professional supervision for our team facilitators and, you know, we pop it in the diary and we always have to book it out a long way in advance to get all the diaries and get the supervisor to come across and do the work. And then as, as, it, as it eventually rolls around in the calendars, there's all this pressure to go, oh, you know, could you cut it short? Could I put a sneaker call in at the beginning of that? You know, you guys are all here. It's a rare opportunity. You, the, the client could meet you all. And, you know, they're not entirely wrong right that's a fair thing and so yeah. inevitably we end up with a negotiated world of where we're going all right yeah schedule it over lunch break or early and we'll make sure we you know do a couple of things yeah i'm going to pause there that's the end of episode 37 marcus and i got into a bit of a flow <laughs> we extended the conversation beyond what we had originally thought and there's some interesting things to come up in part two where we'll talk about you know organizations leaders and their teams any early warning signals that might indicate the success or failure of a change or a transformation. So tune in next week for episode 38 of the Freedom Fridays podcast. Cheers.